On an evening in early December 2018, the young CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange reportedly dies while on his honeymoon in India. This death is not announced to customers for another month. And when they're told Gerald Cotton is the only person to hold the passwords to their funds, conspiracy theories grow, leaving some to wonder, could Gerald Cotton still be alive? Honeymoon, moving the body, all the missing money. It was like, but what happened? A Death in Cryptoland. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. At the end of the year, the governor general recognizes some of this country's best and brightest with the Order of Canada. There are familiar names on that list, as well as some people you may not know who have done exceptional things in their communities. And this morning, as is tradition on this program, we are going to meet three of those extraordinary Canadians who have all been recognized by the governor general, Mary Simon. First up, Dr. Francine Lemire. Her journey to winning gold at the 98, pardon me, the 88 Winter Paralympics is as much a love story as it is a a story of determination. She learned to cross-country ski in her late 20s after meeting her husband who coached the sport. She lost part of her left leg to a tumor when she was 11 years old and the couple bonded over skiing, but also eventually over their careers as family doctors. Her career spanned more than 40 years with Francine Lemire retiring as the CEO of the College of Family Physicians of Canada last year. And now she has been appointed to the Order of Canada for her contributions to both sport and to family medicine. She joins us from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Doctor, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Congratulations. Thank you very much. What, is it, what does this honour mean to you? Well, it's uh, an incredible uh, level of recognition, uh, both for uh, some of the accomplishments over the years uh, that you've summarized very nicely. Uh, certainly was totally unexpected, uh, but I feel very proud. And at the same time, I accept this with a great deal of humility. You've been recognized, as I say, for a couple of different things. Let's start with the issue of sport. Tell me how you learned to ski. And I, I mean, I teed this up a little bit, but what's the love story behind that? Yes, yeah, so uh, I uh, was working as a family doctor here in Cornerbrook, had wanted to learn to ski for a long time, and uh, met uh, my husband, who's uh, also a physician in, in, uh, in Cornerbrook, and uh, really because he is a very good skier and is a coach, uh, he really was able to, um, to think about uh, adjustments that needed to be done in order for me to be able to ski. And I often say that my husband is married to skiing before being married to me. Uh, we needed to be sure that I could learn how to cross-country ski uh, before we could really pursue uh, this relationship. But uh, both happened, uh, and it has been uh, great uh, for, for the last 40 years, as you indicated. I mentioned in the introduction you'd lost part of your left leg to a tumor. You were 11 years old when that happened. That's right, yeah. What do you remember about, about that time? And how that and how that moment shaped who you became. So I remember um, many visits uh, to uh, an orthopedic surgeon, yearly surgeries uh, between the ages of three and eleven, um, trying to get uh, bone grafts uh, to try to correct uh, a difference in length between my two legs, uh, with the, that final decision to have an amputation. So that's what I remember, and uh, I suspect that this uh, may have played an influence uh, in me wanting to select a career in medicine to make a difference in the lives of people. Would you have thought at that point, and we'll talk about the medicine point, 
piece in a moment, but would you have thought at that point that, that sport would be part of your future at all? Not to the extent that it became, mm. uh, that's for sure. And I did not know how to ski uh, as a child. I had not been introduced to the sport, and so, uh, no, I would not have anticipated this. What did skiing give you, do you think? A lifetime of enjoyment. A lifetime. Uh, so racing was important, but uh, beyond racing, uh, I'm able to continue that sport. Uh, I ski every day now for five months of the year, and uh, it, it's given me a, really a lifetime of enjoyment and, and being part of a community of uh, like-minded individuals who enjoy cross-country skiing. A lifetime of enjoyment, but you're really, really good at it as well. When did you know that you, would, that you were good? Um, well, we, uh, my husband and I uh, went uh, to a uh, competition in 1983. I had just learned how to ski in 1980, 81, and uh, we met at that time the coach for the Canadian team, and he's the one who then uh, added to what my husband uh, taught that uh, really it would be possible for me to to learn and, and be able to perform enough uh, to be part of uh, international competitions. Can you describe the moment when you won gold at the 88 Paralympics? Fantastic uh, times, fantastic uh, period of time. Uh, uh, really felt uh, on top of my game, you could say. Um, beautiful conditions for skiing. Um, we're talking about events that took place 40 years ago, so uh, the competition uh, was good, but not big. There, there were the, the blind category of uh, skiing was bigger at that time. The limb disability in cross-country skiing uh, was a smaller group of people, nevertheless uh, felt uh, tremendously proud uh, of uh, getting to that point personally and also to represent my country. Where do you keep the gold medal? In our living room. <laughs> <laughs> you see it every day. See it every day. Fantastic. You said that, 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 that experience of losing your leg in some ways helped influence your career as a family doctor. Can you chart that path for me? How did what happened at 11, I mean, it seems obvious in some ways, but how did what happened to you at 11 lead you to the career that you, that you had and, and to the role that you had helping to, to shape uh, the College of Family Physicians of Canada? So um, I, th I do think that uh, that experience uh, really uh, influenced me in the wanting to select a career where you can make a difference in the lives of people. Uh, I was originally destined to a career in internal medicine and then uh, changed my mind, uh, mainly because I wanted to be able to uh, see people of all ages and uh, to be involved in uh, seeing them in a variety of settings. And really, family medicine uh, is that kind of a career. Um, I often say that uh, in family medicine, it almost takes a few years in the practice to really get the enjoyment of that practice, mm. to be able to see people uh, from cradle to grave for the little things and big things in their life and contribute in a small way or a bigger way, to a life worth living for them. And that really is what family medicine is about and what the enjoyment of being a family doctor has been for me. How worried are you that six and a half million Canadians, one in six of us, don't have access to, to primary care right now? 
So I'm pretty worried about it. I was worried about it throughout my time uh, at the college, uh, and even though I have retired as CEO, obviously uh, I am not uh, indifferent to what is happening right now in this country. What do we need to do to, to think differently? We've talked a lot on this program about the role of nurse practitioners, about encouraging more people to get into family medicine, about changing how we think about, about uh, primary care. But what do we need to do, do you think, at a, at a base level to, to address that? Yes. So at a a base level, level, I think as a country, we do need to make a a definitive uh, commitment to to support stronger primary care and strengthen family medicine, because there is lots of evidence that countries that have strong primary care systems Mm -hmm. have better population outcomes. We do invest in uh, public funding for health care and primary care in Canada, but there is some evidence that uh, our investment is not as strong and as big as uh, that of some other OECD countries. So I think we need to think about that. Mm. Um, I think we, we need to continue to support what I call attachment. So attachment of uh, each of us to a most responsible provider, be a family doctor or a nurse practitioner, does remain important because attachment also makes a difference to the experience of care and to outcomes. Um, we, we're investing right now some energy in team-based care, and I think we need to do this, mm. but I think we need to do this as well as support attachment. I think we need to support proximity care, and proximity care is really important. You know, if you if you move to a new neighborhood, you don't ask yourself whether there'll be a school to send your children to. There is a school in your neighborhood. I think we need to be thinking about family practice and community-based care in that same fashion and really make sure that, that uh, there is that place that is in your neighborhood where no questions asked, you can go to get most of your care. I do think that that's important. Yeah. Um, this is, a great, it's, this is a great snapshot of why you have been recognized uh, with the Order Thank of Canada. Your wisdom, but also just how you see this. And I wish you, I mean, you mentioned retiring and that you ski every day. I wish you the best of weather when it comes to snow. Um, I know that snow has been hard to come by in many parts of this country, but uh, hopefully in Quarterbrook, the snow will fly soon. Congratulations again, and it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much, Matt. Dr. Francine Lemire, just recently recognized with the Order of Canada. She is the retired CEO of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Carol Lee is our next Order of Canada recipient. She's being recognized for her leadership as the chair and co-founder of Vancouver's Chinatown Foundation. Carol, good morning to you. Good morning, Matt. Congratulations. Thank you so much. This is important. Well, it's it's great to have you back on the program. And this is important in part because you're not the first member of your family to receive this honor. (laughs) 
Now, my father received this honor uh, a number of years ago. I was trying to Google what year it was, but um, he unfortunately passed away in, in 2020. But I think he would be very happy. How did his... Especially, especially since he told me that revitalizing Chinatown, he thought it was an impossible task. I was going to so, say, so how, yeah. did, how did what he thought of your, your, what you wanted to do, how did that shape the work that you ended up doing? Well, you know, my, and my father was no um, stranger to taking on difficult projects. So when he said to me, I don't want you to do this because I think it's impossible, you know, my response to him was, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? And, you know, over time, it didn't take him that long, he understood the importance of the neighborhood and why it needed to be done. And he was a huge supporter right until he died. So You and I spoke about so, that work when yeah. I was in Vancouver, just right before the pandemic. Um, in in 2020, and we were in Chinatown, yes. and we talked about about that that work. Why was it so important, personally, for you to to help with the revitalization of this neighborhood? To help with with the, not even the revitalization, but saving Chinatown. You know, it's funny because growing up, I didn't really put that much importance on Chinatown, but as I understood more about the history and the the contribution of the the early railroad workers. It, to me, the Chinatown neighborhood represented the sacrifice and 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 the legacy of of those peoples and and their contributions. So that to me was why it was important. And I think that you know saving communities, not just Chinatown. It's really kind of we were hoping a model for other communities to take a look and see. Well, how might we do something if we need to try and help revitalize our community? So, so it was quite, it was twofold, really. And part of that is about recognizing the past, but it's also about looking ahead, right? In terms of yes. what the community means in the future. What do, how, how do you strike that balance between the two? Because people will often preserve a neighborhood because of what it was, not thinking about what it could yeah. be. Well, I think that, you know, the, the saying that we've got in the foundation for the Storytelling Center, which we opened in 2021, so it's the first permanent exhibition space in Canada that tells a Chinese-Canadian experience. Our motto is really honoring the past, shaping our future. So it's the, the past is absolutely the anchor, but to make way for growth and, and revitalization, you need to allow things to change. And uh, you now need to allow you know younger people to come in and, and create their own histories too. So that's been a really fun part of it, to be honest is to sort of see the growth and, and the phase that we're involved in right now is, is the, there's the, the foundation works on three, three revitalization pillars, physical revitalization, social housing, cultural revitalization, and economic revitalization. And the economic piece is, is the piece that we're focused on now. And it allows you to bring in lots of different people to come and participate. That community, as you mentioned, is tied directly to the building of the railway across this country and, and those yes. who built that railway. Um, yes. It, it, again, it sounds obvious, but as a nation, why is it important that there is a physical place that remembers the sacrifice and the labor of those individuals? Well, because it is, it's really part of our Canadian history. I never thought of it as being just part of our Vancouver history or British Columbian history. And I, I think that the reason it was important because, um, you know, after they completed, I guess, probably one of the most important infrastructure building projects in the, in the history of Canada, they actually, that was in 1885, they were unwanted and they had nowhere to go. And so they ended up settling in this place, which is now Chinatown. So the beginning of Chinatown is the same year as the completion of the railroad. Mm. 
And I think that that was an important story for us to remember. Do you see success in the work that you're doing? Again, in speaking with you there in Vancouver in 2020 and having gone back through Chinatown just last year, um, there is development pressure. There is pressure from other neighborhoods around Chinatown. Are you seeing uh, that neighborhood strengthened? Absolutely. You know, this is, was an exciting year for us. This is the first year that we had alignment of all levels of government. So we had investments by the municipal government, the provincial government, and the federal government. So in some ways, you know, we brought this issue so that people are aware of it. It's on the map. So when you spoke earlier about, you know, saving Chinatown, it's not going anywhere. I think now it's just like, how do we want to see it develop? You know, and how do you balance the the, the development versus the preservation. And it's a fine line, but I think that we're doing it. You think of your father and the work that you do? Every day. And I think that he would be really happy about the progress that we've made and, 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 and just how many people have been sort of joined this. It's really kind of a movement because when you're revitalizing community, it's really about people. And um, I think he would be surprised at how many different kinds of people from all walks of life from different areas have come together to try and say, okay, let's see what we can do together. It's been very rewarding. Carol, congratulations. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to talk to you again. Carol Lee is the chair and co-founder of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. She runs several businesses in Chinatown and has just been appointed to the Order of Canada. Deantha Edmonds is also being honored with the Order of Canada. She is Canada's first Inuk opera singer, a writer, a composer. She's in St. John's. Good morning to you. Ulasia, good morning. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Nakumik. You're being recognized for, in the words of the Office of the Governor General, your significant contributions to Canada as this country's first Inuk opera singer. What did it mean to receive this honor and receive it in particular from Mary Simon? Oh my goodness. Well, it's just an incredible honor to receive this appointment and to be recognized for my work, but especially significant because it's coming from another Inuk um, and one that I look up to so much. Uh, it's really, I, it's really hard for me to put into words, but I'm just so touched. I love what's on the front page of your website when you essentially define yourself and you say, "I am more Irish Inuk freckled." Not young, not old, the list goes on and on. Tell me about the I am more. What does that mean? That is actually a poem that I wrote called What Are You? Mm. Because that's a question I've been asked so many times in my life. And um, it's a difficult one to answer, you know, because people try to put, we, we try to put each other in boxes, you know, and I, I really am just made up of so many different parts of myself. Um, and as I've grown and matured and experienced different things in life and just different stages in life, I really just decided I'm going to celebrate all of the parts that make me, me. And, um, and enjoy that, you know, and try to try to encourage others to do the same. When did opera become one of those parts? What was it that that, that was intriguing to you about opera? 
Well, it's it's interesting because I I actually grew up in Cornerbrook, um, where Dr. Lemire uh, is as well, and. Um, it was a beautiful community. My parents were very supportive of uh, my siblings and uh, and my education and our music education. Music was really important in our family, just something that that my father and mother loved uh, listening to all different kinds of music. And they really supported us uh, in taking piano lessons and singing lessons. And I loved singing in choirs as well. Um, when I was in grade three, I was so over the moon because I was finally old enough to join the school glee club <laughs> at my elementary school. And I had the most wonderful music teacher who taught us, um, you know, incredible choral pieces like Ave Verum Corpus by Mozart. Um, and I I just loved singing this style of music. I loved I loved singing high. I loved singing in other languages. And then when I was 12, 11 or 12, I learned my first German solo um in preparation for the music festival and uh oh, I just loved the thought of storytelling in another language and uh using my voice in this different way. So I always knew that I wanted to be a music teacher and a singer and a writer and uh, a mother and I'm really blessed to be able to to say that uh, all of those things make up my my day-to-day life now. I remember hearing this is from a few years ago you singing an aria from from the Messiah in a nuctitut. Um, yeah. and, and I went back because I thought maybe I'd misremembered that and I went back and, and listened to it again last night. Um, how did that oh. happen? How did you come to 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 incorporate your inuk culture in, into something that is it, it, from a distance seems so different in opera, but it, when you listen to it, it actually makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense, especially to Labrador Inuit. Um, my father, my late father, Albert Edmonds, was from Nunatsiavut, the ancestral homelands of Labrador Inuit. And when I was growing up, he told me about the beautiful choirs and and music and stringed instruments and brass instruments that were part of um, the church and community life uh, in the communities along the north coast of Labrador. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I learned and really understood that some of the music he was talking about is by Mozart and Bach and Handel and Haydn and other European composers. So the Moravian missionaries brought with them stringed and brass instruments and handwritten manuscripts of music by these great European composers when they settled along the north coast of Labrador over 250 years ago. Mm. Um, So Inuit of Labrador have been playing and singing classical music in Inuktitut for centuries. Um, and so to be able to sing the music that I'm passionate about, the music that I love and that I've trained you know, professionally to sing, to sing it in the language of my ancestors, um, it really is such a special experience for me every time I do it. And now, you're, feel... and now, and now you're doing it with your daughter. Yes, I am. Annabelle is, uh, she just turned 13 before Christmas. And what a joy it is to sing together with her and to coach her in singing in her her papa's uh, language. 
I'm so glad to start the new year uh, speaking with you and hearing some of your music. Congratulations and thank you very much. Nakumik, Matt. Thank you. That's Diantha Edmonds, just appointed to the Order of Canada. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.